Hello everyone, welcome to the place that gives you the most up-to-date and on-demand B2B sales content to ensure that you crush your quota. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to those in our audience, and welcome to episode six of 100% to Quota. This is a special episode because today I am joined by a former colleague and good friend, Edward Gorbis, uh, head of sales at Job and Talent. And Ed has an incredible career and a lot of cool things to share with us. So, Ed, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing incredible, Javier. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, I'll start with some fun stuff. I hear you you recently moved to Miami. How's that going? Cannot complain. You know, it's always been an aspiration of mine to live on the beach, by the beach, eat good food, enjoy warm weather. So it's been great for my family. That's amazing. And this is a special week for Miami, Miami Tech Week. A lot of great things happening. So you couldn't have made it down here in a better time. And I'm sure you're going to find a lot of great conversations down here. But before we focus on, on Miami, which we could, I want to learn more about you, Ed. I obviously know your background, but I brought you on the show for a very specific reason. So tell us a little bit about your sales journey to start off. As you know, but I think I probably have one of the most unorthodox sales journeys that most people would describe where I started my career in the engineering world and transitioned to sales leadership through a variety of different pivots over time. I think early on in my career, even though I had this technical acumen that I gathered, whether it be through college, grad school, et cetera, I quickly realized that I didn't like looking at the world through a micro lens. And I much more was interested at looking things, obviously, through a macro perspective where I could drill down on specific items, especially within an organization. But I certainly wanted to look at things top down. And that really forced me to pivot where I spent the majority of my time. So I literally went to give you the 10 second version of my resume. I went from engineering to program management to customer success at a variety of different SaaS companies, ultimately transitioned to more account management roles, which led to promotions into leadership positions within the sales organization, and ultimately landed a position at Job and Talent basically to run their U.S. sales team and build it out from scratch. So that is a skinny version of my career. Obviously, always happy to drill down and help folks kind of understand and visualize how they can do something similar. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Ed. And I, I mean, I have, I have like seven things that I want to unpack from what you just said. But um, I guess the first one is, you know, a lot of people are coming to tech, whether that's for opportunity reasons, for monetary reasons. But tell me a little bit about what brought you from, you know, starting as an engineer to deciding like, hey, I'm going to go on the client facing side. And I asked this question because this is a common pivot that I've been seeing nowadays. And obviously, no one better to tell about it than you. I think there's a couple of questions that you asked. And an important one is, why do you get into tech to begin with? I think some people naturally just get into tech early on in their career. Mm-hmm. I got into tech maybe three or four years into my career, despite growing up in the Bay Area, despite having Google, Facebook in my backyard and really seeing them expand. I, as an immigrant, I honestly just didn't have the resources, the insight to jump into that world immediately. And like most immigrants, you either go into lawyer, doctor, and engineer. And I went down the civil engineering route. 
And I mm-hmm. think through a lot of conversations with people, obviously in the community, my friends, I realized that certain people were, yes, making a lot more money, but also having a lot more fun because they're working with people who were their <laughs> age. Let's be honest, when you join a civil engineering company of any sort, you end up mm-hmm. working with people who are older, who think differently, who look at the world in a certain way. And as an engineer, I had that innovation at heart, but it wasn't aligned to the actual work that I was doing. So that was the first time in my life I realized what alignment really means when you're passionate about something or you're interested in a specific area. So that's what kind of challenged me in my mind to say, hey, do I really want to be doing this? And I started exploring tech started thinking about what types of roles I could do in tech. Obviously, I didn't have a software engineering or computer science background, but I knew that I was fortunate to have done a variety of different kind of customer service roles, yes, during high school. But I think through those experiences early on, we kind of glean into the fact, hey, I'm actually good or I like working with people So I kind of leveraged my project management skills, my technical knowledge, and certainly the industry that I was working in at that time, which was the energy space, and then basically made the move to a SaaS company that sold into the energy space Mm -hmm. and essentially use those project management skills to position Mm -hmm. myself into a customer success role. So there's a couple of things that I obviously use there as leverage, but there's so many things that people have to understand that if you're trying to make a similar transition, you have to align yourself with a company that your skills are transferable. Because I try to apply to Twitter at the time. And literally, if you think about that in retrospect, you have an energy background, an engineering background. (laughs) What value are you going to add to Twitter? So it took me a while to really figure that out. So hopefully that can save some time for people. Yeah, no, this is amazing. Customer success slash account management. Like, tell us a little bit about your experience getting into that role coming from like an engineering background. How was your, you know, kind of day to day and what, what were you doing at the beginning before you got to where you are today? I think day one, when I stepped into that organization, great people, they hired top caliber people from top name mm-hmm. school. So, surrounded with very smart folks. And I think day one, I said, hey, I know nothing about customer success, but I'm going to learn everything Mm -hmm. I can. That was just my Mm -hmm. mindset. And that was my motto. So I went Mm -hmm. to every customer success meetup in the Bay Area. I networked with everyone I could at Gainsight, including Nick Mehta, who's their CEO. And Gainsight is the number one customer success tool on the planet. So I pretty much wanted to learn everything about the organization, the philosophy behind, and then really how to apply it within my own organization. And I did just that, which again, within six months led to a promotion, ended up leading a team, ended up closing some of the largest deals in the organization as an upsell and outpaced our sales team. So that's when I realized that what sales means to me, and we can certainly unpack that a little bit later, But early on, customer success became this game for me. It's how do I play better than anyone else? What do I need to learn? Who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to network with? I basically can sharpen my own tools and have fun at the same time while crushing my goals, proving to everyone, including myself, that I can be really good at this. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned something that I I want to unpack. Certainly very interesting, Ed, and and appreciate you sharing this. But You're in customer success, which means that the deal has already been established. There's a little bit of a relationship with like what sales brought in the door. And now you're responsible for taking care of the account and upselling, which sounds like 
you did a better job than than sales from a revenue standpoint, right? So what was your relationship with sales, if if any? The relationship was close because again, my approach was you don't just learn about customer success, you learn mm-hmm. about every single organization within the company, how they operate, mm-hmm. what makes them successful. And obviously for us, the good thing is our incentives were aligned, right? Our sales team was responsible proportionally with retention, as was our responsibility from an upsell perspective. So we were designed with intention to work together, but I certainly wanted to collaborate with them to learn their motions, how they think, again, expand how we go to market together. So mm-hmm. there was an intentional relationship there that allowed me to, one, learn, but also to go hand-in-hand to clients and further upsell them. Gotcha. So it was it was a close relationship, but your goals were semi-aligned. Obviously, they brought in initially the deal. They get compensated for the deal at first. Then you come in and you kind of groom the relationship, continue to have the relationship, but you're responsible for upselling and maintaining the happiness of the account. Is that right? That's right. And I guess from a numbers perspective, it was a perfect 80-20 split reversed for each team. So sales was compensated 80% on new sales and then 20% on retention and account management or customer success was gold on 20% new sales and 80% retention. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that because, you know, we talk a lot about net new sales in the podcast, like bringing in the deals, building top of the funnel to bring in the deals. But I think you're our first guest that talks about like what happens post sales, right? So a little bit about the role. What does your your structure look like? You know, do you have a book of business? Do you not have a book of business? Like, do you upsell to the, all these accounts? Like, tell us a little bit about that just so so we can share it with the audience. Yeah. So in any post-sale role, whether it's called customer success, account management, there's different ways to slice and dice it. More often than not, you're responsible for two different things in a well-structured organization. One being you certainly focus on customer delivery experience, again, depending on how technical the product is. But that really is correlated to retention. So your ability to make sure that the client is utilizing the product, gaining value from it, realizing value from it, and then that you can prove it through some sort of data that, hey, you're seeing these types of results, will more often than not help you retain the client and hit those goals. But Mm -hmm. in a well-thought-out organization, you never want to have a leaky funnel. You want to have an expanding funnel. And basically, as Gainsight likes to call it, the hourglass rather than the funnel approach. So you're constantly expanding the relationship. The only way to do that as a good account management organization or customer success management organization is that you're thinking about where else can I solve a problem for the client? What that lends to is oftentimes new opportunities, new conversations. You go deeper within the organization. That's really where the farming kicks in and you're able to grow net new revenue and really expand the lifetime value of the customer. That's those some of those key metrics that you and I obviously want to sprinkle into every conversation that we have. But for those right. learning, really, LTV is a big metric that you should be thinking about, especially in the SaaS world, where what is the long-term value that I can gain with the customer and what's that potential? Because you should care as an individual, your company should care, shareholders should care, 
Mm-hmm. And the market will ultimately care. And those are kind of the North Star metrics that you should be thinking about. Yeah, yeah. How often would you talk to clients? Is Was there time on the books? Like, were you chasing them? I guess, how different was it from like a salesperson that's constantly trying to get in front of them? Would you consider that being part of account management because they're already a client allows you to have a foot in the door with them easier? So one of the things I learned transitioning from engineering to more customer-facing roles is that you're no longer in the science industry, you're in the art industry. And (laughs) talking to clients is really an art because you have to have a pulse on what stroke is going to work on what day. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to paint the entire canvas right away, right? You Mm -hmm. have a few brush strokes over here, so a few conversations. Then you plant a few conversations, maybe through a QBR, a monthly check-in. You can have a bi-weekly check-in. You're also planting seeds and conversations in other areas of the organization to kind of triangulate who you can learn from, who you can kind of influence in different ways. So again, it all comes together over time, but Mm -hmm. you don't have to do it in an aggressive way because you're focused on the longer-term retention and you're focused on new opportunities over time, not necessarily getting that initial door kicked in as most salespeople want to do. And I completely agree that it's a very different motion. But again, you have mm-hmm. to figure out what artwork works for you. Yeah. And and is it true that being in account management, it's a little bit rougher because like people can come to you with the trust and relationship that they have and tell you like, hey, your product's not good. How do you fix this? Did you ever put yourself or live through a situation like that where now things are a little bit out of control, but you're responsible for your, your, your key metric, as you mentioned earlier, is one of them is retention. How do you manage that situation? I definitely experienced that a multitude of times, and we can get into a variety of examples, whether it was at the SaaS companies that we work or elsewhere, but that happens more often than not. Again, there's always a very frictionful relationship between sales and account management because sales has a number to hit. So they're going to try mm-hmm. to get deals across the fence that maybe aren't always picture perfect for the organization. And it's mm-hmm. a sales management responsibility to make sure that we can somewhat deliver those deals. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes account management is stuck delivering the promises of the sales team. And that creates a ton of friction It creates really downstream effects for the organization, not just for account management, but more so for product and engineering to make sure, hey, maybe we have to build this feature that we didn't anticipate having on the roadmap for four quarters down the road. But, hey, this one salesperson said we can do this for the customer next quarter. And that's exactly how they close the deal. And by the way, this is also a multi-million dollar deal that is critical for the organization. So those things tend to arise all the time. How you navigate it is a game of politics within the organization. And it's really about being hyper clear with the impact it has to your leadership. It's not about convincing every disparate team within the company. It's sending one concise email to your entire leadership team saying, hey, we signed this deal. Here are the promises we made. Here's where we're at today. Here's what I believe we need to do. Here are the recommendations. Just agree on one of these and then please disseminate this down to the rest of the organization so everyone's on board. That is the most efficient way. What I used to do is obviously go to every organization, try to influence everyone. It just doesn't ever work that way because everyone has their own conflicting 
microscopic goals within the teams. So oftentimes when you run into those types of larger problems, you go through your leadership team, again, being mindful of how big the organization is, but you have to get buy-in at some sort of leadership level. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tended to do. And you kind of have to be fearless in that moment and realize you're just doing the right thing. And if you right. approach your work by doing the right thing, you're most often going to be successful. Right. And so what I'm getting from that is that you sort of become an internal project manager of sorts between like all the different teams. So in, in account management, the internal sale and the internal, let's say, coordination is probably as important as what you're doing in front of the client. Absolutely. And I would argue that good sales is good project management as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is a great segue for us to talk a lot about, you know, where you and I met. You and I met at WeWork. I highly respect, you know, your work. And actually, you and I met because of SoftBank. So you were the account manager for SoftBank, which was uh, interesting because at the time, some of their leadership was coming to Miami before it was cool. Talk to us about managing high profile accounts. How is that different than managing, let's say, an account where you have a couple of different, you know, leaders, et cetera. But this is like a a world class like organization managing world class, uh, let's say, talent and leaders. So what changed for you? What what did you do differently? So I think to set the stage on this one, it's important to really know what I stepped into and how I basically joined WeWork to help them build out their enterprise account management team from scratch on the West Coast, so everything covering west of Texas. And two weeks into being in that role, obviously having no team, my VP calls me at the time and says, hey, I got a direct call from Adam Newman, the former CEO of WeWork, and SoftBank is really pissed off. And I said, what do I have to do with this? I I don't really (laughs) know what's going on. What she explained to me was that, hey, SoftBank's also obviously a client for WeWork, not just the majority investor. And the relationship that our teams had tried to build with them were, for lack of better terms, piss poor. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, let me talk to them. Who do I need to talk to? Can you make some Mm -hmm. introductions? I basically land an introduction with their head of real estate, CHRO, a few of their VC partners, just to really hear them out what was going on. I had no idea what it was going to lend to, what it was going to create. But basically, the first conversation that I landed with them was this. Hey, what's going on? Well, we know we're your majority investor. We hate your product. It does not work for us. We're being forced to work with you. And we don't necessarily want to continue this relationship going forward. And that was wow. pretty much week three for me. I said, great to meet you. I <laughs> basically paused for a moment, took a deep breath, and then said, look, you're equipped to deal with this. I was fortunate to have the tools in the back of my mind, whether it be problem-solving skills, critical thinking skills, project management skills, and obviously working with clients. So you kind of tell yourself that real quickly, like, okay, let's break this all down. This is where being an engineer really helps me because I can just figure out what are the boundary conditions of the problem and then work within there. So I said, what's not working for you? Well, let's hear them out. They're a financial services firm. They obviously have a lot of clout. They have a lot of respect. And they need these couple of things to make sure that they have a great product, which is obviously privacy, security, custom branding, kind of all the critical things that you can imagine any large enterprise would need. 
And basically I said, okay, let me give me one week. I'm going to talk to our product team. I'm going to see what I can do. And they had a couple of locations with us across the globe at the time, small offices, nothing major that was of revenue significance to us, but they certainly wanted and needed to be kept happy as a key investor for WeWork. So I went to our product team, spoke with them, basically said, hey, obviously I had the leverage that this was SoftBank and people were going to move faster. But I told them, look, we need to develop these types of critical items for an enterprise client. Otherwise, it's going to be another major roadblock and downstream effect for everybody. And everyone's going to get another earful from Adam Newman. So basically what that resulted to is we created a better security standard. We created a better privacy standard through creating different acoustics products, as you know, and not to bore the audience. But basically, we enhanced our product offerings for the enterprise solution. And on top of it, we started to evangelize what later became known as our enterprise playbook to standardize how we go to market for different size offices for enterprise clients across the globe. What that basically led to is a happy client, meaning SoftBank got what they needed relatively quickly because we improved their offices pretty much overnight. And then that led to more conversation, which led to a few million dollar deals, $5 million deals. And our biggest deal was about $9 million down in Sao Paulo. And essentially by the end of my kind of tenure at WeWork, I did over $50 million worth of deals with SoftBank. Obviously, there's a lot of other things that I was able to accomplish there. And that wasn't even my day job. That was my side job at WeWork on top of managing a team and building that whole team out. But for me, it was an incredible experience because it obviously led to where I am today at Job and Talent leading their head of sales, or excuse me, <laughs> leading their sales team. But it's those microscopic conversations that kind of compound over time. And if you just approach them the right way, it's all about the approach, right? What, how am I going to solve this? What can I accomplish from this? How can I help the client? And then from there, that lends to a lot of other opportunities. So to me, it was just, look, this moment feels bigger than it is right now. And it really was because what's the worst thing that could have happened? They're still pissed off. Well, no, I didn't yeah. start that relationship <laughs> and I would have had to at least document what had happened. But it led to incredible experiences. It led to more doors being open. It led to promotions within WeWork and certainly led to where I am today. That's amazing. Just to highlight a few things, going up market requires a strategy. I think you know you described that pretty well because a lot of companies think that just going up market means like picking up the phone and calling a bigger account. And there's a lot of other things that need to happen. There's a lot of other different approaches. And I think what you described perfectly is how you handle that relationship and how you, you know, kind of structure the deal process or the sales motion, right? So I'm glad you mentioned that. And interestingly, also, you mentioned Sao Paulo. You were going overseas at this point. You know, selling, I mean, within WeWork is, is unique. And obviously, we had, you know, our colleagues that were able to help us in different regions. But at this point, now you're selling internationally. Was that different or was that, you know, kind of like the same as like selling in the States out of curiosity? It's a great question because it highlights the obvious but important difference between selling at a multinational organization into other regions and really exporting deals. Because there's different layers of complexity when you're dealing with local counterparts who are also incentivized to close these types of deals which is one, there's kind of the cultural elements that you have to break through. One, in conversation, 
Two, in management and leadership style, really, you have to even understand the internal incentives for local teams and what's motivating them to help you. So I think Mm -hmm. that's the first place you always have to start. And then there's always just nuances outside the organization that are important to understand. When you're dealing with a non-technical product, which was WeWork at the time, I think it's even more complicated because you're dealing with local construction code, compliance code, uh, tax codes. There's so many different variables that come into play. And the key word there is what are your variables that are going to impact how do you close the deal? Again, right. for me, everything just becomes a game and an engineering problem is what are my inputs and what are my outputs? And then from there, I'm able to manage the conversations the right way. Amazing, man. So going to your, you mentioned job and talent. So you you went from engineering to customer success, which is post-sales, to now leading an organization that does, does both net new and post-sales. Am, am, I, am I right? And if That's it is right. so... Tell us a little bit about it. Like, how, how does that transition work? So I think I obviously highlighted the start of the relationship with SoftBank and what that led to when I decided to leave WeWork in 2020 was a continuous, I'd say, mentorship with the SoftBank organization and a lot of the operating partners there who knew, obviously, what I was capable of. And certainly the world was going through a massive, unfortunate transition in different ways. But I think at that time, I kind of took a pause in in my career journey to think about what do I want to do next. And then uh, in speaking to some of the partners that I built relationships with, they said, look, you've done an incredible job at WeWork. You kind of get to ask yourself, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want a bigger challenge. And the truth is, I actually had never led a pure sales team. I've led account management teams, partnership teams, BD teams at WeWork. I obviously had done a handful of sales deals there. The truth is I never led a pure sales team, but they had a portfolio company that they had invested almost $800 million in in 2021. And that company is called Job & Talent. It's based out of Spain. It's essentially a marketplace for large companies that need on-demand blue-collar work. So imagine Uber for the blue-collar industry. Nobody thinks it's sexy right now. Nobody thought taxi services were sexy. But what SoftBank told me was, if you can disrupt this industry in the United States, there's a $300 billion market cap opportunity. You win 10 20% of that, you're a major player, and you're going to literally revolutionize your career. The company's been around for 10 years. It's done exceptionally well in the European market across six different countries and now is expanding into Latin America. We're doing over $200 million in revenue in Colombia, but the U.S. market was brand new. So SoftBank basically said, hey, talk to them. We think you'd be in their sales team. You'd have a ton of resources and you can go to market quickly. And fast forward, here I am today basically building out a team again. Building out teams is something I enjoy because I have a high threshold for the types of people that I want to hire. There's obviously interesting differences between one SoftBank portfolio company and another being WeWork and Job and Talent. Because even though SoftBank invests in them, they obviously have different people, different ways Mm -hmm. of operating, different business models. So there's a lot to learn there. And there's also obviously a lot to teach the people that I bring in. Amazing. I love it because you went to, you know, build a 
sales organization now. So this, your skill sets have sort of evolved as you go in a sense of like, first you had to think about the client and you know what matters to them. Then you have to project manage internally to get things solved for them. As you continue to you know kind of deal with high profile clients, I'm sure you you understood indirectly how to manage people that either reported or didn't report to you to be successful. And then you brought all of those skills together to go to job and talent and actually hire your team to be successful. And what a great experience at what's next for Ed Gorvis, like expanding the world? Like, I mean, how, how do you top this? Because this, this is a great experience. And I mean, I'm sure you guys are, are, are crushing it. But um, what's, what's the future of Ed Gorvis look like? The funny thing is, if you asked me this, and if we recorded with me sitting in the Bay Area in San Francisco, I would probably tell you 10 different answers of what I want to do. Being outside of the Bay Area and just now parachuting into Miami, I realized that life is about living in the present. It's not always about planning ahead. It's just doing really good things in the moment, which is what I was able to do when I was obviously working in the trenches with the SoftBank team. And to me, it's just doing a good job today and doing a good job tomorrow and the day after that. And that lends to more opportunities. That doesn't mean you're not ambitious. It's just the approach is very different where, as you know, I like to post a lot of content on LinkedIn. And what those types of things lend to is new opportunities, whether it's advising companies, consulting gigs, different conversations with organizations, and you feel those. But obviously, for me, I want to do a good job with where I am today, because I know that will afford 10x the opportunities a year, two, three years down the road. And that's how I like to think about things now. I used to be a huge planner. I'd have my career mapped out. And we both know that the world changes at a speed that we can't fundamentally comprehend. And the innovation comes at us from every single di- direction and we have to embrace it. That's just right. my underlying approach now. So yeah, I moved to Miami with intention, which is to meet great people, network, build new relationships and what that lends to, we'll see. Amazing. Ed, I couldn't thank you enough for being part of this incredible journey that we're, you know, kind of getting to meet great people like you. And and obviously you have a atypical, you know, kind of a sales background coming from engineering to account management, managing high profile accounts. We haven't even talked about this, but I know you're super active on on LinkedIn and Twitter. And I think that, you know, a big takeaway is, you know, your activity, your ability to produce content has opened up opportunities on a personal and professional level, which is a big takeaway. Is there any any final guidance or advice that you would want to give to someone that's starting either their account management career or, or, or thinking about getting into account management? Focus on being well-rounded, meaning you're not just good at the job itself, but you show interest in how your counterparties work within the organization. That will make you well-liked. It will get you resources faster. It will help you execute faster because you can understand how their brains work and what's in it for them. Because when you can understand what's in it for the other side of the fence, you can accomplish anything. Could have summed it up better. Ed, thank you for being here. uh, And thank you for everyone to listen in. As you know, Quota is your leader for producing uh, sales content for B2B SaaS in Spanish. And we're excited to continue to bring on 
awesome guests like Ed to continue to share the story on 100% the quota. So that's it for us today. We'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we look forward to continuing to give you the best resources and the best tools to get to 100% to quota. The top of the leaderboard is waiting for you. See you next time. Three, two,